Please remember, conversations during EY podcasts should not be relied upon as accounting, tax, legal investment, nor other professional advice. Listeners must consult their own advisors. I think inclusion is the key. And we've seen a lot of lack of inclusion. So even when we choose a value chain for a community to engage with, we start with the local resources, the local terrain, what is going to work for them and what is the traditional knowledge in. And then we also match that with what are the markets going to consume. So by default, we have always worked with women and we continue to work with women. And it's been wonderful because when women earn more, when women are economically empowered, they are further socially empowered, meaning their voice is heard better in the family. Truth is, humanity can save itself and our planet. And right at this very moment, there's someone who's taken on this challenge and is on a path to solving an incredibly tough global problem. This podcast was created to tell you about them. You're listening to Better Heroes, a show from the global EY organization about the untold stories of entrepreneurs devoting their lives to impactful innovation. And I'm your host, Matt C. Smith. What does Mother Earth do? Hmm. Well, she provides for us. But so often, the wealth and natural resources of a region make a few people in far-off places rich, but do very little for local populations. How can we change supply chains so local artisans and farmers are provided for and compensated fairly for their labor? Neelam Chiba believes she has an answer that not only empowers local farmers and creative workers in India, but is also good for the environment. She's the co-founder of Industry Foundation and managing director of Mother Earth. Her organizations are building collectives, training artisans and teaching them to utilize a global marketplace. What we do is obviously molded when we are really young. So Mm. I decided to pursue design because our brochure at the National Institute of Design said that Design is problem solving. <laughs> so I, I just found that deeply intriguing. And that's what I guess has interested me. And that's why when I was at design school, I went and worked with people from India who actually have been behind our traditional production practices for centuries. These are so-called artisans, I mean, who live in the villages. Mm. And when I worked with those communities as a designer, understanding who they are, how they work. And I finally understood the whole centuries-old connection between society, communities, consumption, and how things have evolved nature over the years and why we are to some extent where we are. (laughs) And that's where I put my life behind. You know, finding something that has a purpose, that has an impact is becoming increasingly easier, but you took a different route, right? You've actually decided to be part of the change in the various practices and organizations that you've been supporting. Trustee Foundation, of course, was the first organization I believe you've been involved in. Tell us a little bit about industry, the foundation, how you took the stepping stones going from this industrial design background and product design to that formation of that business and and what it supports. 
Yes, so as an industrial designer, we used to work with very, very, very remote communities assisted by the government of India because government of India sort of had funds for designers to go and work with communities and help them reach national or global markets because these very remote communities have been cut off from modern consumption because these were communities that actually produce stuff for their local economies, right? If you lived in a village in India, you got your cloth, you got your shoes, you got your construction material, everything from the artisan community who were your neighbors. But with industrialization, all their needs started getting met by imports from factories. And therefore, their own producers who lived in the communities were out of work. So they were getting cheap plastic products in place of the other stuff that they used to normally buy. And obviously, they went for the cheaper plastic products. That's the way the economy works, right? So to me, it was very, very natural that I look at how we can look at an economy where our communities are an intrinsic part of the economy. And that's when I actually initiated a business. So we were supposed to be a connect mm. between rural communities and modern urban consumers and see that they could connect with each other. That was the initiation of the journey with a business. <laughs> and I had to do all the hard stuff related to business, which I can tell you is very, 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 very tough. But I guess I built my, you could say, fiber through that. <laughs> and then we founded a nonprofit, uh, which is the foundation, Industry Foundation. And over the years, we evolved a brand called Mother Earth in India. So that's been the how the journey took shape. India has a long and rich economic and production history that was interrupted by colonization. Neelam hopes it can soon become one of the world's largest economies, with one of the largest populations of workers in the creative industries. India was the second largest economy in the world, right? And our largest contributor to the economy was our creative manufacturing. So all our silks, all our fabrics, all our clothes, I mean, everything Europe kind of consumed, a lot of it came <laughs> from India, right? But post-industrial revolution, all that dramatically changed. We then became raw material suppliers. So our mm. cotton was taken to England and it was transformed in the mills, mm. right? And so there was a huge loss to the economy in terms of jobs. And obviously it took India years and years and years to kind of open out its economy and it's growing today. But what's happened in the process of the great growth that India is going through, and we are going to be the third largest economy in the next eight to 10 years, we are going to leave behind all these communities, right? And for us, it's a huge opportunity, keeping climate in mind, Mm. to talk about sustainable production and consumption. So 60% of the global consumer is looking for sustainable consumption. So what we are saying is that this is this massive workforce still in the villages. We have about 200 million practitioners who have still a lot of skills and there are huge markets growing now looking at traceability, looking at sustainable consumption, what were the biggest disconnects there that you experienced at the beginning? What sort of the biggest differences between sort of the conventional way of doing things 
versus the artisanal, dare I say old school, but good school way of doing things? Yeah, I think uh, good school is a good way of describing it because I think the issue with our sector has been the term old school. Mm. So with this entire discussion on the regenerative economy, old school has now become good school because historically all the ways of production have always been extremely regenerative. Essentially, it is that we cannot expect economies to change overnight. The next regenerative economy will come, it will evolve, but it will take a good 20-30 years for it to happen. So there's going to be no dramatic shift. There's going to be no revolution. No heads are going to roll. So how is the transition going to happen? Right. Mm. Therefore, we discovered that there were two, three key things that needed to be done. One is that you've got to look at social and environmental sustainability. Mm. And all this is obviously something we've picked up with thought leaders all over the world from Global North, Global South, that sustainability is not just about the planet. Yeah, Sustainability is deeply interlinked with communities. I, I don't want to go into great depth here on that, but there's a deep connection between communities and climate. And not enough is spoken about that. When you look at the greenhouse gas emission codes, GHG, there is scope one, scope two, scope three, scope four. So scope one and two are about reducing carbon, reducing emissions. But scope three and four are about the other things, the communities and all the other stuff which actually needs a lot more of focus. And that's what we do. So other than very specifically showcase examples that this is not a niche thing because we have to engage with businesses now. We cannot say we'll engage with you 30 years later. We have to engage with them now. Therefore, we engage with large businesses, be it an IKEA, be it a container store, be it an H&M. Because they all have programs to bring more sustainable product to consumers. The demand for economically and environmentally sustainable products is growing. And they're going to be increasingly easier to find at stores we're already used to. Every large corporation is trying in some way because they're all noticing this trend. So we work with them and enable our communities to supply to large global supply chains and we plug the gaps there and hope that over the years there is far more localization and this entire globalization push gets modified in some way. Mm. I'm curious, you know, we've learned in other episodes of this podcast, we've spoken about regenerative agriculture, right? Regenerative economies is a term that I haven't actually seen too often. How would you define regenerative economies? So a regenerative economy is where it will be entirely traceable. I'll take the example of bamboo. So bamboo is a hugely carbon sequestering product. So we start with farmers. India has the world's largest number of smallholder farmers. We do not need India to lose its smallholder farmers and move the way of the West with these large industrialized farming. So we built collectives of the smallholder farmers because they need some scale. To bring about scale, we've really got to focus on retaining the small but 
getting the advantages of the large. So that's the first step of regenerative economies. We talk a lot of bringing back collectivization, but in a modern way. You don't have to call them cooperatives, though the West, Norway, Sweden, Finland, all your countries were built on cooperatives. 18 to 20% of your economies are co-op economies. Only 1% of India is a co-op economy, right? So we collectivize farmers and they can then have the advantages of bargaining together. Once the bamboo is matured, bamboo is carbon sequestering. The same could be done for any other regenerative ag product. It could be a millet, it could be a wine, it could be grapes, it could be anything, right? That's the raw material side. Then we look at the value addition. I think in our models and in the regenerative economy model, what is clear is that communities are going to gain, local communities have to be transformed from being mere labor to value addition. So they should actually make the entire wine or the entire value-added millet porridge or the entire bamboo product themselves. Why should the raw material always go out for others to process? So we take processing to them because that's where the local economies really strengthen. Waste is reduced. All the waste can be used there locally. So you see a reduction in carbon. You see a reduction in emission because you're transporting less outside. You see a reduction in waste and you see a reduction in vulnerabilities. Regenerative economies try to keep resources and profits in the local community. They do it by processing and packaging natural resources in the same region that they were grown in. That means they're good for society as well as the environment. So even when we choose a value chain for a community to engage with, we start with the local resources, the local terrain, what is going to work for them and what is the traditional knowledge in. And then we also match that with what are the markets going to consume? And they can sell some in local markets and they can sell some in national Indian markets and they can also export to global markets. Mm. So it's all got to be thought out, designed. And of course, you've got to measure the kind of miles you sort of use up when you export it. Mm. But you should possibly gain that because of all the other regenerative techniques you've used through the value chain. But this is the kind of transition we'll have to do across a whole lot of value chains. So we have a very strong value chain approach. That's how we work. And we work with women. That's, I think, the big part of the piece, which I haven't articulated this far. When we talk about reducing vulnerabilities, globally, it's understood that it's really helpful working with women. So 90% of the people we work with at community level when we build these collectives, whether they are the manufacturing enterprise collectives or the farm collectives, they are all women. And we see women not as producers, but these women are owners of their businesses. These are SMEs mm. and they are pretty large-scale SMEs. We can have 2,000, 3,000 women in a collective and they move into positions of ownership, positions of management, positions of quality supervisors, production supervisors. So it's not as though they're just mere labor. So we're building out the entire ecosystem, Yeah, trying to do it also with a lot of uh, digital technology. So they have smartphones. 
so they can engage with each other and with buyers. So it's a work in progress. So you as a former industrial designer, you built that skill set, discovered this issue, this problem on that level. So I think I've wrapped my head around what you're doing. And I've written a little comment about what, how I think it is in a nutshell, right? So effectively, what you're doing is aggregating and consolidating these artisanal producers into a sort of collective ownership model, which then allows them to benefit from economies of scale due to their size now as an organization, instead of being an individual. You provide a layer of management, this business prowess you mentioned, that allows them to raise capital, connect them to the IKEAs of the world, as you said already. And then in doing so, instead of going individual to individual, like me going from whale to whale, stopping this whale, stopping that whale, and the others, unfortunately, might not have been stopped, then I've saved one whale. That's one nice goal, of course, right? Now I'm one drop in the ocean. Instead, I've, in your case as well, you've, you've gone and solved all these different aspects, right? Because you've now created this collective where they can maybe get insurance, they can increase their wages, education. Is that sort of a good summarization of what you've created? Absolutely. And I loved your kind of comparison on how each one of us is a drop in the ocean, actually. Mm. Though we as an organization, we have 200, 300 people today as an organization, we are a drop in the ocean. We have impacted 500,000 lives so far in our 20-year journey. We have ensured 58 million USD of new market access for all our communities nationally. We have taken our model to Ethiopia. We really want to scale it across a lot of island nations and across Africa. And we believe LATAM and we also believe, frankly, Europe. Why not? Because there are a lot of artisanal communities in a lot of pockets in Europe still. Mm. But we are still a drop in the ocean. And I think from there comes the fact that it's important that we all do whatever we can do. Picking a strand like you pull one thread out in your lives. And I think that thread is passion. We have to find that point of interest. And that will lead us. And we'll always be drops in the ocean. But it's all these many, 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 many drops. So we are great believers in co-creation and collaboration. Mm. I think that's also the way our models are going to scale. Because as an organization, we have the aim to impact 3 million women in India. Mm. We need to impact 3 million women over the next 10 years. yeah. And to do that, we have decided we don't have to scale as an organization. We also have to work with other organizations and enable them to do what we do. So we've got many ways of which we are trying to not use the industrial approach to scale. Mm. That we don't become a thousand person organization, which is like the typical way of doing things. But do them in ways that are more human and which are different and intrinsically trying to change the way business as usual happens. So we, we have to walk the talk. As industry and Mother Earth began to grow, they realized that women in India have been underserved economically. Neelam speaks to how shifting their business model allowed them to be an incubator for female entrepreneurship. We realized that as we were growing our model that we needed to work in areas which were completely new. So we chose the area of natural fiber because there were very few large exporters in India or large manufacturers working in natural fiber when we initiated our work. 
because we had to compete and export to large companies. So we chose natural fibers and natural fiber is an area which is dominated entirely by women. And when we went in, the Indian government also has huge programs to work with women after the entire microfinance movement with Mohammed Yunus in Bangladesh. There was a global trend and India took it on extremely well. So all the women in our villages are formed into self-help groups. These are groups of 15 women who are taught to save and to support each other. So we have a very, very strong foundation at village level. So at industry, we take that foundation and we collectivize these groups to larger collectives, which are more production focused. So by default, we have always worked with women and we continue to work with women. And it's been wonderful because mm. when women earn more, when women are economically empowered, they are further socially empowered, meaning their voice is heard better in the family. And we hear stories all the time from our women about how they never ate hot food because we run very strong gender programs about what their rights are, how they should be treated at home, what they actually deserve. Because these are things so many women actually know nothing about at village level. So a classic example is about this woman who was attending one of our programs, is a member of the collective. She says, I went home and told my husband, you know, it's not good that you slap me. You can't slap me. And the guy says, yeah, okay, really? Okay, I didn't know that. And she says, he stopped slapping me. So I'm not saying every story is such a beautiful and comfortable story. But there are also certain norms in society which have been built over the years, which are now being broken. Because there are these women who are earning, taking money back home. And they are learning about the fact that they own a business. It's their collective business. There is a lot of sisterhood when they come into work. And the young girl said, you know, this is a space for us to come and meet. We come and meet. We talk to each other. We share our problems. So there is so much impact at so many different levels when you work with women you're tapping into an existing somewhat innate human nature to build clusters among our own and those like-minded individuals um, around ourselves. And it's just great to see that your organization has tapped into that organically too, instead of being exclusionary, because that's a challenge to this as well. Why do we have to be specific to one gender? And I imagine you still also, as you said, still work with all types of genders, but you've found this trend in uh, artisanal producers in these female-run communities. I was curious how you think about impact. How do you define impact? I have two sons and I have a husband and I would never be able to do anything I did if it wasn't for the support I got from all the other genders around me. And we also ensure that we work with the men hmm. because I think going forward, it's becoming very clear that for more gender balance, it's very important to work with multiple genders. I think inclusion is the key. For us, we are looking at intersectional impact. We are saying that look at impact across equity, climate, and gender. I have a short form for it. It's called ECG. may not be the most appropriate, <laughs> but it's easy to remember. 
So we are saying that with regenerative economy building work, you are seeing intersectional impact across so many areas with the almost maybe marginally extra dollars that you put in. So to us, impact now needs to be viewed in a more intersectional way. Believe it or not, globally it is not. We don't always think about how natural resources become finished products and make their way to us. But things like supply chains have an impact on people and the climate. Industry in Mother Earth's model looks at production holistically and finds multiple areas where they can affect systematic change. If you will look at root causes, you are going to have intersectional impact. So you have to look at, even when you give out money, you have to be looking at more than one area or more than one goal. Hmm. So A, that's one key way that we view impact. That the world of impact should also not start siloing itself so deeply. That's number one. Number two, on impact, I believe that one should not look at the global south, especially in the area of climate and gender and equity, which is what we do, as just being recipients or beneficiaries. We are talking about climate mitigation. We are saying that these communities can also help you mitigate. They can help you build supply chains and value chains that are local. Now, India, if it's going to be the third largest economy in the world, it's going to consume heavily. Is it going to import everything from China the way every other growing economy did? It's not great for the planet, is it? So we need to encourage our communities to build our local regenerative economies, increase localization, and therefore, other than just climate adaptation funds, we need to look at climate mitigation funds. Because if we are building a low-carbon footprint economy in India, for India, if India is going to grow the way China did, the planet is doomed. Because we have the largest population in the world today. yeah, And we are going to be the next biggest consuming economy. Mm. So the way people want to sell in India has to dramatically change. So 70% of the action in climate is around consumption of food, fashion and home. 70% of the action is there. So the way people look at impact has to change. So in terms of that intersectional inclusion growth that you're speaking of, what's your approach to, say, an artisanal manufacturer producer, whether it be a solo producer, a small SME in a village there? Talk us through sort of what is your approach to helping them reach self-sufficient business growth and inclusive growth? This is the cue for our magic formula. So I think around 2013, we articulated something called the 6C framework. This is something that is emerged over the previous 20 years that we need to enable communities to access the 6Cs. So I'll just quickly run through them. And these 6Cs need to intertwine and be orchestrated. And if these things happen, you will see success. Right? So our first C is construct. 
which is formation of the collectives, the production, access to better production facilities, and professional capabilities. All that comes in construct of the collectives. Our second C is capacity, which is all the training of the communities, the hard skills, entrepreneurial skills, and them understanding their rights. So that comes in capacity. Our third C is create, which is the value addition piece. That we do not want most vulnerable communities at rock bottom just doing primary production. They've got to move up the value chain. Our fourth C is channel, which is the market access, local, national, global. And our fifth C is capital, which is the working capital. Our groups, if they went to microfinance, they would get working capital at 24% interest. It is ridiculous. It's enormous. You are not in any way competitive. Therefore, we are building new forms of finance, whereby they get finance at 12% landed at their doorstep. So all that comes into capital. And our last C is Connect, which is a digital framework. It's all kind of automated digitally. So these are the six C's. So we had it. We had, that's all we needed, the six C's. That's what everyone's been listening and waiting to hear. <laughs> the golden nuggets. I hope you all wrote that down. Uh, if not, go back and listen to it again. Thanks, Nelian, for sharing that. You keep mentioning consumption. You mentioned 70% of the problem around impact is solved through consumption, right? So... You've gone full circle because now if we come from the evolution of your initial foundation into this world, Mother Earth. Mother Earth is a brand, is a e-commerce company, I believe, selling artisanal products that are sustainably produced, organically engineered, that are supporting communities. Tell us a little bit more about why you decided now to go on the consumption angle too with Mother Earth. So Mother Earth is, like you said, an awesome brand. We launched 10 stores in India, and we have an e-commerce platform. The e-commerce platform is multiple brands. I'm sorry, we had to make a platform. We can't do anything small. So it's called flourish.shop. So if you are in the US, it's flourishplanet.com. Don't ask me why we don't have the same URL. But in India, we are flourish.shop. And all our brands are available on that, as well as multiple other conscious consumption brands. Mother Earth was always meant to be about product, good for producers, good for consumers, and good for the planet. And I think the Mother Earth journey has been phenomenal in showing us again and again repeatedly when we put product on the platform to sell, what an issue there is that the huge problems, the groups, I mean, there are hundreds and thousands of these groups all over the world. But what problems they face to scale, like if they're working with 20 artisans, they need to work with 200. Hmm. But for them to move from 20 to 200, they need access to the six Cs. It comes back full circle. So they have a channel, they have a market now, but they need the capital. Hmm. They need some of the digital tools to improve their productivity, their quality, the ERPs. They need the design. They need better design. So we always go one step forward and then we come back to the same foundational issues always, anywhere, all over the world. So with Flourish, we are hoping to have a lot of groups onboarded from Africa, Latin America. But all those groups are going to need the 60s wherever they are. Mm. So it's all about how could we 
as industry enable through the mother earth retail journey through the flourish dot shop platform journey and through the b2b sales journey we know the markets are out there but how do we enable all these groups and all these communities get expanded into these markets you've organized those products you're selling them on flourish how can we as consumers because i think many of us listening to this are consumers right i mean unless we go down there to support and advise and give management advice as you've done already it sounds like you've solved that problem for us on the ground in these rural communities and these artisanal producers in india and elsewhere what can i do what can anyone listening to this do having listened to this to support this type of sustainable growth in our consumption as consumers you have one of the most powerful i mean you are the most powerful people right and there are thousands of sites out there so the way you buy the way you consume yeah it needs to be a little more thoughtful and all of you are doing it right i also understand that everyone's hard pressed for time but please there's flourishplanet.com we've also launched through catalyst 2030 a global network we are part of something called catalyst markets there's good market there are clusters and clusters of good selling sites so i i don't want to plug in for one particular platform because i know like plug in this said, is your chance use the platform yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it is flourishplanet.com and if you are in india it is flourish.shop and other than that please look at good market look at catalyst markets we're all out there hmm. and look at the way you shop i mean give it a little more time maybe a few more minutes and more patience a little more understanding and i think everyone is trying definitely to be price competitive so i think that's not an issue nobody believes that consumers should be doing good consumers consume but if they consume a little more consciously i think the pricing also is pretty okay i don't think there are so many issues on that anymore where would we find some of your products some of your artisanally produced products in the mass market now you mentioned um, ikea how do we know that they're coming from your one of your organizations from mother earth or they've come through the cluster networks with industry so at ikea the product lines uh, were labeled industry producer transform private limited they had the labels you're looking for next generation because next generation is the artisanally produced handmade lines which are more regenerative in nature. Neelam, thank you so so much. This has been such an insightful and engaging conversation. I love the work you do. I will try to shift my consumption next time I go to IKEA. It's always fun there anyway. Follow the arrows around Thor, get lost for a few hours and leave with something that you didn't expect. But thank you for joining us and go and check out what was it? The uh, the two e-commerce platforms we we need to purchase from? flourishplanet.com and flourishplanet.shop in India. That's the one. Neelam, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Better Heroes. You can learn more about Industry Foundation and Mother Earth at industry.org.in. And you can learn more about EY Ripples and all of our impact entrepreneurs at ey.com/eyripples. The links are in our show notes. Oh, and please don't forget to subscribe to our podcast, Better Heroes, wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also rate and leave our show a review to help others find out about the amazing work our impact entrepreneurs are doing. Before we go, we'd really like to thank our podcast producers, Human Group Media, 
who helped us bring this show to life. That's it for today's episode. We'll be back next week. Better Heroes is a project of EY Ripples, a global program to mobilize people across the EY network to help solve the world's most urgent social and environmental challenges. By extending EY's skills, knowledge, and experience to impact entrepreneurs on a not-for-profit basis and forging collaborations with like-minded organizations, EY Ripples is helping scale new technologies and business models that are purposefully driving progress towards the UN's 17 Sustainable Development Goals. The views of third parties set out in this podcast are not necessarily the views of the global EY organization or its member firms. Moreover, they should be seen in the context of the time that they were made. <laughs>